We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. We're going to turn again to the book of James. The last time we were here, and I think it was January 29th, if I got my dates correct, we were talking in chapter 3, and we had a lot to say, or the, the book, the text had a lot to say about the tongue and the words and all that. And we're going to talk about some of that. And then we will make our way to chapter 4 and talk about some of the things that we find in chapter 4. I want first, though, to go back and pick up a few things from the earlier chapters to try to tie things together a bit. So I'm going to start with the first verse of the first chapter. And we see James, a bond servant of God, out of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, greetings. And so we are bringing that message there. And then he starts out by saying, my brethren. And so what we observed before and noted is that James gives a description of himself, but he doesn't put it in terms that would be boastful terms, but in just pointing him, they focus not to himself, but to someone else, to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he wanted the focus to be, but as Pastor just used the word, he was an instrument. He was a, vis- a vessel that had been fitted for the master's use. And that's what he was doing here, conveying what God wanted to be conveyed. God had prepared him for that work. He told them what to do with the trials that were going to come their way, that were going to be their portion. What to do with those? It matters how we respond to things. It matters. And James is saying to those whom he identified as brethren, in our way of thinking, we just think of that as a way of saying these are Christian people. These are people who have trusted in Christ for salvation. They know him. They belong to him. These very people have various trials that are going to be that are going to be their portion. Anyone who has been a Christian for more than a day, I might say, already knows that trials is a part of what it is that this new life is. 
or what it entails because trials come along. But if they come, the issue is not will they, but when they, what do we do? How do we respond? And this is what he's helping them with there. And I'm not going to go through all of that again, but he says there, there's a proper way to respond. And if they, they should recognize a need for help and just ask God for wisdom. To say, give me the wisdom to understand what I need to do uh, in a circumstance uh, that I have. Now, it also says there, though, in that first chapter, an admonition against the, the double-mindedness that can creep in and be a part of a person's way of operating. And he says, be aware of that. Don't be one who is a doubter. Because he says in verse 7, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So not a doubter. Somebody who has faith in the Lord, but not a doubter. And then, and I'm just kind of skipping through. I'm not trying to cover all the points here, but I'm going somewhere here. Now, I'm going to go down. He talks about desires that come and what to do, how to handle those. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Clearly, tempted in that expression is a temptation to do an evil thing, not the testings that God permits or sins, but attempt drawn to evil. Don't say God did that. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own, his own desires. So first drawn away, he has these desires that are his own and drawn away by those and then becoming enticed. One of the things that we need to continually remind ourselves of is, is that when he says our own desires, that means that we have some responsibility with regard to what happens. We have a responsibility. And we need to admit that. And if we don't, we're setting ourselves up for problems. Our own desires. And then he said that desire, what can happen with it? Concede a birth given to the bad desire. And where does that lead? Full grown. Death is the end of it. So if one was to look and to say, I have these desires, and if I pursue them and lead on to the natural end of that, and see the end. Hmm. If I'm thinking clearly, I don't want that end. That's not what I want. So if we try to put our minds forward to say, okay, what is the end of this path I'm on? 
Oh, that's what it is? I don't want that. I got to find a different path. Not that one. I don't want it. That's what he's trying to get them to think. If we think of the end result of where we're headed, if we know what path we're on, if you're on the narrow, straight path, or if you're on the broad highway, it's important to know which one you're on. Because if you keep marching on that path and never get off, it's going to end at the destination that is at the end of the path. That's what he's saying to them. So, he says in 16, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I keep dwelling on this. And yesterday, as the man meeting and I was talking somewhat on this kind of idea, deceit, being deceived, evaluating information properly and using it properly, acting on it correctly. But it's a recurring theme in scripture to not be deceived. And we need to continually pay attention to that and ask for wisdom from God to know how to avoid traveling down a path that is a deceitful road. We need that help. In verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I focused before on this word, a phrase, of his own will. So salvation is of his own will. Which means that if a person is to gain salvation, it has to be through the means that God has provided. Not any means they provide for themselves. Which means then, that for James to use this word, and we've covered this before, he can't be propagated salvation by works. No matter what kind of works those might be, whether works of keeping the law or other good works, he can't be propagating that. Because see, what we have, this is the word of God. That would be a contradiction to what this statement says. But there is no contradiction. James is not promoting the idea that one can work whatever sort sort it is, and by that means be made right with God. That's not his argument. But his argument does have to do with life and living and how we do it. And it's important to us, for us to recognize and to understand that. Now, verse number 20. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So here we see, and we might can use that phrase 
Carla Evans as an overlay of what's being taught in the book. Because the righteousness of God, so for us to be righteous as God desires for us to be, is more or less the theme here and what he's trying to get at. And so in that light, or in the prior verse, he says, then, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Because the righteousness of God is at stake. Then, I'm skipping down to the end of the chapter here, in, verse, in chapter 1. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious... Now, religious in this sense, we might say, is, let's, I, let me use this phrase, thinks he's a good Christian, <laughs> but does not bridle the tongue, but deceives his own heart. An unbridled tongue, a deceived heart, he's saying, that man, while maybe religious, it's a useless religion that he has, or she has, who has that. So the point is that there is what we sometimes call objective reality. Some things are true, and some things are false. And it behooves us to know which is which. <laughs> and we don't do ourselves any favors by self-deceit. So he says, pure religion and undefiled. He just gives a couple of examples of how it might be expressed or be seen. And he says, before God and the Father, before God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows uh, in their time of need. Now, moving on to chapter 2. Now, he says, My brethren, again, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And so now he launches into this discussion as to what he means by that phrase and what the importance of it is. Because they had a situation where people were getting different treatments on the basis of certain outward things, outward appearances. And so somebody coming in and appearing nice and all dressed in expensive suits or whatever to think about it in our way of thinking and seeing things. And they get the royal treatment. And someone comes in just in ordinary clothing. Something what we might say the average person who doesn't have much wealth might wear it's not an issue of it being clean or not. That's not the issue here. But it's just that somebody is presenting, let's say, expensive garb, and somebody in very simple, plain garb, and then to make a distinction on the basis of that. James said that's wrong. That's not how God evaluates, and we shouldn't either. So he gets into all that. I'm not going to go deeply into that part of it so we can get on to where we want to get to some of the other verses farther along. But then there is a discussion further down, 
talking about this idea of being able to have works and what one says about works that they have and how do you present and what do you do about all that. And let me say in verse 16, and one of you says, depart in peace, be warm and feel. That's what they said to somebody who needed some food, who, who were in need. They were destitute. They needed clothing. And just to say to them, be warm and feel, but don't give them anything to help. He says here, what does a prophet Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not work, is dead. By itself, if there is a type of faith that can't produce any work, it's a dead faith. Faith that works that are good in God's sight. So out of the faith, out of being in the right place, God brings those things out. And so there is participation. And so then this hypothetical discussion between these parties. One says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. And so the whole idea is that by works, works can be a, a, a marker. It can be an indication. It can be a way of seeing something that reflects what a person is. It can be that. And that in a Christian life, God works in the person to cause works to be produced, (laughs) to cause some works to happen. But if there's nothing, then it says, what do you have? So, in verse 20, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Now, I think some people have misunderstood that to think that it says faith without works is dead to think that, well, perhaps if we just get too busy with these works, then that would get us where we need to be on the faith side of things. I've actually talked to people who seem to take it like that. But that's a mistake. It's not saying these works produce anything in terms of being right or justified before God. It doesn't say that. But works is a critical thing, and it has importance, and it must not be neglected. I'm moving on. Now, chapter 3. He began in chapter 3 talking about in verses. Let me read this first part here. He says again, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We talked some about that, the whole idea. And we 
get the notion that what was going on with them is that there were some who were wanted to push their way into the role of being our front to, to propagate. And he says, don't rush into that office. Be aware that the ones who are in the office will receive a stricter judgment. Now, generally, if people know they're going to be judged, people don't volunteer for the stricter judgment. <laughs> they don't just come and say, judge me by stricter standard than everybody else. So he says, it's not your choice. <laughs> That's what standard by which you will be judged. You know, it kind of makes me think about our world, where it's going, some of the things that are happening, and the standards by which people are judged. And some seem to do certain things because they know that the standard by which they're going to be judged is low. And so they do what they do. But in God's business, it doesn't work like that. It says that God will put forth that stricter judgment. And so now the whole business about the tongue, the tongue, that little member, the tongue is a mighty, powerful force. He uses comparisons to horses and to ships to bring us the idea that a horse, big, strong horse, can be controlled. A big, mighty ship can be controlled. But if you look at the instrument that's controlling it, it's small, very small comparative to the size of the whole thing. A bit in a horse's mouth? How much does that weigh compared to the weight of the horse? How much muscle does it have compared? It doesn't have any muscle. It's just whatever. A little girl could sit on that horse and control it. I say a little girl. I mean, we're not offended that little girls are usually maybe not as strong as little boys. <laughs> but a little child to control a big old horse, just a little bit. And then it says, well, what about these ships? There's a rudder. You can use that thing to direct a ship. It's small. But then it says, what about the tongue? He says, the tongue is a little member and both great things. That tongue is a powerful instrument. And it says, basically, that it can't be controlled without, I'll put it this way, caveat, without the help of God, <laughs> right? But it can do enormous harm. It can be like the lighting of a match at a forest, in a forest. And setting ablaze thousands 
of acres of timber. One little tiny match, a little town saying certain things and setting off unfathomable, unfathomable wars. That power of the tongue. And so the whole idea is, in his emphasis on this, that the tongue ought to be used properly. And James is saying to his brethren and to us, be mindful of the tongue and its use. I gave some illustrations before about more practical things about how the tongue has affected certain things. But I just, I don't want to spend too much more time there now because we've gone, we've gone over all of that. I talked about contradictory uses of the tongue. And he talks about that too. Is that the tongue being used in one sentence to bless God and then another, and another to curse men. He says in verse 10, My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Why would he say that? Well, the reason is because there were people who did it, and they needed to stop it. And why is God saying that to us? through these words it is because we have the same opportunity to misuse our tongues just like they did and sometimes we do and say things we ought not to have said things sometimes that are highly offensive not just to each other but to God which is ultimately the issue. And so we ought to be careful about that. So he said, a fountain can't send forth fresh water and, and bad water, bitter water, at the same time. If the two are mixed, the water coming out would be contaminated. And that's a problem. And so all this talking about the tongue and then let's look at verse 13. I'm still in chapter 3. So he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, take note of those two things here. Bitter envy and self-seeking. And I think we can each ferret out a pretty good idea of what he's talking about in that. He says this wisdom does not descend from above but it is earthly. It is sensual. It is demonic, that wisdom, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 
And then in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is, so there's a dichotomy, one side or the other side. On the one side, demonic. On the other side, from above. First pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace in those by those who make peace. So now we're going to go into chapter 4 a bit here. So throughout this whole book, we see all of this, this all this tongue business. And in one session I said good uses and bad uses, proper uses and proper uses of the tongue. Now chapter 4, he starts this way. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, wars and fights, we're not talking about military warfare here. But what, what, is, what is it? What, what's, the, what's the engine of these wars and fights? The tongue, right? See, the thing that he's speaking about here, he's still talking about the tongue <laughs> and the uses of it. He's still talking about that. Wars and fights. They're having disagreements and they're having battles and all that. And he says they do not come. He said, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Their desires for pleasure. And he said, this is, is welling up in them, and it's driving them. And because of that, having an excessive influence, the things that are coming out of the mouth can be characterized as wars and battles, or fights and battles, squabbling with one another. But he says, among you, he still has in context his audience, whom he addressed, his brethren. And so I know there are some who discuss the whole idea of, well, is, is James, in some of these things, really talking about those who are believers? Or is he talking to a wider audience and saying some of these things that are directed and intended for unbelievers? And I think however we take that, the Christian people ought to understand that what he's saying is for me too, right? Anybody who will listen to the word of God can benefit from it. But his primary audience is the brethren. That's the people to whom he wrote the letter. So he says, you lust and you do not have. And so you murder. Some people take that a bit hard to think. Well, that can that actually exist? Can a Christian commit murder? 
we don't need to get into the discussion, but I haven't found in my Bible a list of sins that God says, everything in this list are the sins that Christians can't commit. <laughs> right? I haven't found that list in my Bible. Some people, maybe they have. But people have those li- their lists. And they said, this, 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 well, a Christian can't do that. Can't do that. That's for a discussion for another time. But for now, it says here, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet, and you cannot obtain, or because you cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Because you do not ask. So there is a, asking is is idea of prayer, to, to ask for things that are appropriate. But then he says you ask, but do not receive because you ask amiss. What does that mean? That you may spend it on your pleasures. So the motive of asking for it from God. God is not going to provide for you with the intent from God that you use it for your own selfish pleasure. God's not giving to you any blessings for your use that way. That might be a bit confusing the way I said that. But the idea is, as what he says here, that they were asking, but with the wrong motive. And that's wrong. And he said, don't do that. And then it talks about adulterers and adulteresses in verse 4. And some say that what are considered better manuscripts uh, don't have the word adulterers. It just says adulteresses. We don't need to be concerned concern ourselves with that. But it says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So now we have to have some idea and get some understanding of what is, what is this all about? Friendship with the world. God. Because there is a problem between them. And we, we'll talk some more about that. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let's think about that for a bit. Wants to be. Desires to be, has a goal to be. And then an enemy of God. That's a very serious thought. Wanting the approval of the world. I think the idea is we have to be careful to know that we're in the world and we're to participate in it. But there is a world system that operates on principles that are contrary to God. And there are philosophies and teachings and theories that are contrary to God. And there are people who hold those and their lives are immersed in that. And that's what they propagate and talk about with whatever company they have, 
whatever audience. And if our desire is to have the approval of those whose whole worldview and their whole messaging is opposed to God, that's a problem. That's a problem. But we can easily get there and not even realize it. Because if we don't pay attention to God's word, we're going to be far more likely to be imbibing some part of that without even being aware of it. So this whole idea of deceit and deceived and self-deceived, I can't get off of it. <laughs> Pastor said to me yesterday, oh, you, you're still on that. <laughs> you, you're still on that theme. <laughs> I can't seem to get away from it. I guess the Lord is, needs to do a work in me, and he's working on me and us because we are all of the same Adam, <laughs> right? But anyway, I hope this is helpful. It's helpful for me to spend this time looking into the scriptures and trying to consider it and to focus time on what God has to say. I can tell you that I have listened to the discourse of some people and I've heard certain things that stood like a red flag. <clears throat> because I said, that's the exact opposite of what God had to say about that. See? But if I hadn't awareness of what God had to say about it, I maybe would have thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. So, like yesterday, I was talking about the, the, the measure that we use to evaluate whatever it is coming to us, the information. Somebody has a philosophy, and they're bringing it. They want you to believe that point of view. We're not supposed to say, well, oh, that's, that feels good, or that sounds good, or that seems reasonable. We should have an idea of what standard we're trying to apply. <laughs> and this should be the standard we're trying to apply, what God has to say about it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, dear Lord, for your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace, for allowing us to come today and to have your word open before us. We just ask you to open our hearts to it so that you might be honored and glorified in us. We ask in his name, our Savior, with thanksgiving. Amen.